to see everyone this morning. We are glad that you are here. I'm the guy you sang happy birthday to. And it is 55 today. So I know I only look 45, but you don't, no need to comment. We're in Matthew chapter 8 today. We are in a passage that will age you. So, Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. Five short verses, but a very big story. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, or turn in your uh, insert, and look at that scripture with me. Let's read this together. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. It's speaking of Jesus, and it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. And in this passage, you challenge us to have faith, to show faith, to exercise faith, to demonstrate faith, to apply our faith. And we think we can do that, but we're not real sure. So help us to consider what it means to have real faith, so much so it changes our lives. And by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we're talking about being in a storm on the sea this morning. And I don't think that all of you are aware of this, but... One of the most terrifying experiences of my life came since I've been the pastor here at Potomac Hills. You're probably thinking it had something to do with a message I gave that wasn't going so well, and I felt like I wanted to crawl away and die. It's not it. I'm so accustomed to that. It doesn't even phase me anymore. <laughs> Some of you are thinking perhaps I said something controversial and people were upset and offended. That's not it either. After 16 years of preaching here, I've offended enough people, doesn't bother me anymore. Actually, it didn't happen in one of our worship services. But while we were on vacation 15 years ago, now most of you know our children as young adults, some younger than others. But this was back when they were in the 5 to 15 range. And one summer, we went up to Massachusetts to visit Joanne's family. And one day, her brother John, who's now with the Lord, invited us to go sailing with him. Now, John was a very accomplished sailor. Back then, he had a 29-foot sailboat. It's a very large sailboat. And named the Toucan Two. And he sailed it from New England to Florida and back. So he's a very good sailor. Besides, the boat was kept in this nice, calm harbor. And we're just going to sail a few miles out to this nice little island. The water was calm in the harbor. The problem came when we got out of the harbor. And the water there 
not so calm. In fact, it was pretty choppy. And the first thing that happened was everybody got sick. And there's this wonderful image of my family, most of whom are hanging off the back of the boat, backside sticking up in the air, while they decorated the back of the boat with the contents of their stomachs. It would have looked really funny, except nobody could laugh without throwing up. <laughs> we finally got to the island, had a chance to go swimming and relax, and, and Uncle John, being wise and thoughtful, was gracious enough to cook up a bunch of really greasy hamburgers, just so we'd all have something in our stomachs for the return trip. <laughs> now, I thought getting out to the island was rough, but compared to the trip back, it was nothing. While we were on the island, the wind had picked up quite a bit, and the three-foot waves had turned into six-foot waves that turned into nine-foot waves. And that 29-foot sailboat that looked so big in the harbor felt about the size of a postage stamp now. And these waves are big, and they crashed into the boat and carried the boat up on the waves like it was a bath toy. Joanne's sister Marie lost her hat to the wind, and it disappeared almost instantly. It blew off and landed in the water, and a wave swamped it, and it was gone, just like that. And then John said, always helpful, that if one of us went overboard, we would disappear pretty much just like that. In fact, you have this flotation pole with a flag on it that you're supposed to throw in the water to try and mark the spot where someone fell overboard. But he also said it's really not all that accurate, and if you go over, the odds are really against you. It was not reassured. John had started the motor to help stabilize the boat, but we're still getting knocked around pretty hard. One wave crashed into us, tipping the boat sort of sideways, and Sam went flying into a corner. And Marie and I were closest to him, and we both dove for him at the same time. We caught him in the corner. He was crying. Marie banged her head. I gashed my leg. Everybody was sick and scared, and this boat trip wasn't very much fun anymore. And I began to wonder if we were going to make it back. The boat began to tip more and more as we went. And I'm sitting in the back of the boat, trying to hold on to as many kids as I can. And you know how everyone gets real quiet when they're scared? It was deathly silent. The kids' eyes were wide with fright. And I could tell everyone was wondering if we were going to make it back. And at one point, I'm sitting on the back left of the boat. The boat's leaning way over on the left side. And when I looked down, I saw water. And I'm looking straight down, hanging on with all my might, hanging on to the kids. I'm staring at, at water. The boat is literally up on its side, and I thought we were going over, and I was petrified. I truly thought my entire family was going to die out in the ocean that day, and I was helpless to do anything about it. Now, I've been in scary situations before, as many of you know. I spent a number of years in the Army. I have crawled under live machine gun fire. I've had a 60-ton tank roll over my foxhole. I've had a stun grenade go off between my legs. But with all the stupid things I've done, they only endangered me. I'd never done anything before that endangered my family like that. And the fear of losing my family was far greater than the fear of dying myself. And I looked at all these scared eyes, and we were just paralyzed with fear. And I started praying for all I was worth. 
Now, you might think someone who's known the Lord then for 25 years, now for almost 40, who's been to seminary twice, who's been a minister for seven years at the time, now 21 years, would know all the right words to say in a crisis situation like this. Not true. I looked down in that water. It was so close I could reach down and touch it. And I swear, the only words that came out of my mouth were, oh God, 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 oh God. So much for a seminary education. What happened? I was overcome by fear. I was scared, frightened, terrified. I truly thought we were not going to make it. And fear gripped me so tight it was suffocating. There's an older version of the Bible that describes someone gripped by fear in Daniel 5, 6. It says, Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. That's real fear. Well, obviously, we lived. And we made it through that day, and the boat didn't tip over, probably due to John's sailing skills, although he did mention once we were back on land that he had never seen it tip over quite that far before. <laughs> also not reassuring. I haven't been out in a sailboat since. Uh, hopefully a long time before my family's in any kind of dangerous situation like that. The sea is a dangerous place. It was no different in Jesus' day. One summer, he went up to Capernaum to visit Peter's family. And one day, he invites the disciples to go sailing with him. Some of the disciples are very accomplished sailors. Matthew 4 specifically mentions Peter and Andrew, James and John, who were not only fishermen, but fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, where they were now. And back then, Jesus had access to a 29-foot sailboat named the Icantu. Just in case the disciples said, you can't, he just pointed to the name on the boat, I can too. Actually, I made that stuff up about the boat. <laughs> but other than the name, it's not far off. In 1986, archaeologists discovered a fishing boat from Jesus' day, and you can go there and see it, and it's 26.5 feet long and 7.5 and feet wide. It carried uh, uh, passengers of 10 and a crew of 5. And that part's true. And so we're here in this situation, and we know we're about to get a miracle. And we're looking at learning from the miracles of Jesus here in Matthew. Now, in the Gospel of John, at the very end of the Gospel of John, the Apostle writes, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, that which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So whenever Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John records an incident, when they preserve an incident out of the life of Jesus, it's not just because it happened. Lots of other things happened that they never wrote down. It's because it teaches us something. Miracles of Jesus aren't just magic tricks. They're always both redemptive and revelatory. It means they redeemed and saved and taught people. They saved and demonstrated and they taught. And if we study a miracle, even though we're not there, we'll find it'll change us and teach us. Now, what would this miracle teach us? If it teaches us anything at all, it'll change us. And if you really grasp it and understand 
this, uh, it will change you and it will be revelation to you, it will be redemptive. And this miracle is going to show us Jesus from four different views, four viewpoints, uh, four stances, four pictures, four different conditions. And each of these pictures teaches us something. So let's turn back to Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27, and we're going to look at each one fairly quickly. I think one of the conditions we would really like and expect, but three of them, not so much. Not sure if we would like them, probably wouldn't expect them. So let's, uh, rather than start at the beginning, I'm going to go to the one that we would like first, the one that we would expect. And that's in verse 26, and that's the rebuking Jesus. The rebuking Jesus. First blank in your outline there. It says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm. Only Mark records him speaking. And Mark 4 says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So what does this teach us? The reason that Matthew and Mark and Luke preserve this incident is because ancient people saw no greater symbol of death and destruction, of chaos, than the storm, the typhoon, the hurricane. You know, even in modern days, we've only been able to come up with things like nuclear weapons. And most of us know that one old-fashioned hurricane is far more powerful than most nuclear weapons. There's no greater symbol of destructive chaos than the storm. But Jesus is Lord of the storm, and he rebukes it with a word, and the text tells us, and there was a great calm. Now, in Psalm 29... There's this tremendous place where it tells us, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory. See, the physical storm is also a metaphor for the insecurity of life, the storms of life, and how tremendously small and insecure we are. But Jesus is the Lord of the storm. And this miracle shows us that Jesus is God himself. So you know what it's saying? The Bible is not just saying that God's power is greater than the power of nature. It's saying that the very power of nature is derived from God's power. Nature only has its power on loan from God. All power is from God, which means when it thunders, it's actually, in a very real sense, God's thunder. It's God thundering. And when Jesus says, peace be still, and it all goes away, he's telling us, I am that Lord. Storms only have power on loan from me. I'm the Lord of the storm. I'm the king enthroned over the flood. And if you take refuge in me, there isn't a force on the face of the earth that can wipe you away. 
There's not a thing on the face of the earth that can strip you bare, make you shake, whisk you away. In me, and only in me, are you safe. That's what he's saying. The rebuking Jesus shows us that Jesus is the Lord of the storms. And that's kind of where the rub comes in. I mean, the rebuking Jesus is good news. Makes you feel good. Wow, you're impressed. But then we have a second picture. And it's of the sleeping Jesus. Go back with me to verse 23. The sleeping Jesus. It says, When he got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus is asleep in the midst of the storm. Not only does this miracle tell us that Jesus is Lord over the storm, but the sleeping Jesus tells us very often, for some reason, God seems to take his time about storms. He lets them come. He lets them rage. He lets the waters come up. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. Often, it seems that God's asleep. There's another psalm for this one, too, and it's Psalm 44. And there it says, all this has come upon us, although we haven't forgotten you. We haven't been false to your covenant. Our heart hasn't turned back. Our steps haven't departed from your way. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's Psalm 44. In other words, it often seems that when the storms of life come, when we're being battered, when it looks like we're sinking, we ask for God's help. You know, here the psalmist is saying, hey, we've been true to you. You've forgotten us. We haven't done anything wrong, and this is happening. Why are you sleeping? And what this is teaching us is that God will often seem asleep. Because God will let things come. He'll let the storms come. He'll let the waters rage. He'll let it go on longer than we think it should. And he won't be hurried. And that's not good news, is it? Let me tell you something. The Bible is telling us in this picture of the sleeping Jesus, although God has complete power over the storms, he usually doesn't act the way we want him to act. He often seems to sleep. He often lets him go on. And if you're a Christian or if you're coming to Christianity and you have this delusion that you think once you give your life to Christ, everything's going to go well for you, and once you give your life to Christ, things will fall into place, everything will be fine, that's a delusion. Nowhere does the Bible say anything like that. As a matter of fact, you have places like James 1, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Have you prayed for steadfastness lately? Well, if you would like that, it comes through the testing of your faith. Testing of your faith comes through meeting trials of various kinds. If you want steadfastness, Jesus says, get in the boat. The rebuking Jesus and the sleeping Jesus are not contradictions. I want to apply this in two ways. How do we already said the rebuking Jesus? We remind ourselves that in him, Nothing can wipe us away. Nothing. But how do we apply the sleeping Jesus to our lives? Well, two ways. And the first is you've been warned. You've been warned. God lets waves come. 
God lets boats look like they're about to sink. God lets things look pretty bad. He lets the winds come and the storms rage. You've been warned. What does that mean? Well, I think 50% of the distress, 50 plus percent, more than 50% of the distress that we experience in the midst of trials and tribulations is simply shock and surprise. There's the pain of the trial, and that will never go away. But then there's the surprise that this even happened. And you're sitting around saying, how could God let this happen to me? I thought I'd been doing a pretty good job. Why would God let this happen? And that's the 50, 60, 70% of the distress. That's your fault. You can't help the pain of living, but you can do something about the surprise of the pain of living. And I think we're being told, don't be naive. If you're surprised, you're being naive. God's told you it's coming. You're a rookie. You're a kid. You're not being wise. You've been warned. God lets this stuff happen. John 16, 33, in the world, you will have tribulation. A promise you don't want to claim. But if anybody's shocked by that, the shock, which is the difficult part to, to handle, can be eliminated. That's the first thing. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Uh, don't be uh, shocked when the storms come your way. The second thing we learn here is God's not going to be hurried. I mean, in the account in Luke, it says, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Mark, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I just imagine Jesus getting up and saying, okay, okay, gets up, looks around, stretches. God's not going to be hurried. And if you really think about it, who wants to hurry God? I mean, do you know that much about what the storm is all about? Do you know that much about your own heart? Do you know that much about life? I mean, think about it. Today, you know, we have a lot of football fans here. In every football game, thinking particularly of college and pro, but even now in, in high school, football teams put at least one coach way high up in the stadium, way up in that booth at the top. And they have their little mics just like me, and they're talking to the guys down on the sidelines, and they're telling the coaches what's going on. You know why? Because the people who are closest to the action have the worst perspective. The people who are closest to the action have the poorest understanding of what's going on. They can't see the big picture. And so down on the sidelines, the head coach is saying, why are they moving the ball on us? Why are they running on us? But he can't see it. But way up high in the booth at the top, the other coach says, well, the linebackers are lining up way too deep. From up high, you can see it. And very often, the people closest to the actions are the ones that have the worst perspective and the poorest view. But God has the big picture. God will not be hurried. And again, who wants to hurry God? Think about this with me. If there's a God who created the universe, it's only logical that his schedule might appear illogical to us. Say that again. It's only logical to assume that sometimes God will appear illogical. It's only reasonable to assume that sometimes to us God appears unreasonable. 
It's unreasonable to think he would always appear reasonable to us because he's so far above us. He's way up at the top of the stadium. He sees things we don't. He sees things we can't. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story about sheep and how their sheep in Scotland are put into a vat of insecticide once every couple of months. They just pick up the sheep, dunk it, pull it out. If they didn't get put in the vat, they'd get all eaten up. They have no natural defense against uh, lots of insects and insect bites, and they get bloated, and eventually they would die from insect bites. But when you put them in the vat, they don't have a very good perspective on what's going on. When you stick their heads underneath, they're like, he's drowning us. What kind of shepherd is this? Sheep can't see the big picture. They're sheep. Shepherd's a higher order of being. God is a higher order of being. And the sleeping Jesus tells us he is not going to be hurried. And who in their right mind would want to hurry Jesus? The wise person would pray, Lord, I'm asking for this thing, but please give me what I would ask for if I could see what you see and know what you know. God will not be hurried. God will let the storm come, even though it doesn't seem like it's fair. God will let it rage a lot longer than you think it should. And we've seen the rebuking Jesus tell us he has power over the storm. And we see the sleeping Jesus tell us he doesn't deal with the storms the way we like. He deals with them in his own good time. So the rebuking Jesus is good news. The sleeping Jesus we're not so sure about. And then there's the third picture, and you're not going to like this one at all. Because it's the questioning Jesus. The questioning Jesus, verse 25. And then they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? There's a storm. The boat's being swamped. Big giant waves. How can you ask, why are you afraid? Seems pretty obvious to me. And I'm sure the disciples were looking at the water saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. I hope. Um, but the questioning Jesus teaches us that we can trust Jesus and how we can trust him in the midst of the storms. And how do you trust Jesus when it looks like he's asleep? He gives us a wonderful answer to that. After it's all done, after their panic is gone, he turns to them and says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. In Luke 8, he says, where is your faith? Years ago, a godly man named Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon on this verse that's just terrific. He doesn't use real modern language. It's not the easiest to read. But this one was just brilliant. All these insights come from him. And he says that little question is the key to how to trust Jesus in the storms. Because Jesus doesn't say, you have no faith. He says, you have little faith faith. He doesn't say you should have faith. He's basically saying, where is it? Essentially, he's telling them, get it out. It ought to be here. What are you doing? Get it out. Why don't you have it? He doesn't say you don't have it. He says, you have it. You're just not using it. Where is it? It should be here. That tells us a few things. First, it tells us that faith, contrary to popular opinion, is not automatic. It's not a feeling, it's not an impulse, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't kick on like your air conditioner. It gets too hot in the house, 
air conditioner kicks on right away. That's the way it's set. That's the way it's made. And people think, well, if I had faith, it would just turn on. Obviously not. What he's saying is faith is a deliberate action. He says, you have it. Why don't you get it out? You see what that means? It means faith is applying what you know about Jesus. They're being controlled by the storm. They're being controlled by the situation. They're being controlled by what they see. And Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you have faith in me? Why don't you pull it out and use it? I mean, think about it. What do they already know about Jesus? I mean, he's standing there. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me heal thousands of people. You've seen me teach you. You've seen that not one thing I've ever said has failed to come true. You've seen me say that a number of the hairs on your head, that I love you. You know these things. Get them out. Where are they? They ought to be here. You're not using them. You're not applying them. Faith isn't just something you have. It's also something you do. It's something you exercise. Faith is deliberate action. So the rebuking Jesus is good news. Sleeping Jesus, we're not so sure about. Questioning Jesus is kind of uncomfortable. And then there's the fourth picture of Jesus, and this one is downright scary. Because it's the powerful Jesus. It's the powerful Jesus right at the end of our passage. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? The disciples are stunned. It says the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Mark's account says, And they were filled with great fear. And Luke has both. They were afraid and they marveled. Now the disciples have seen Jesus give strength to lame legs, sight to blind eyes, health to the centurion's servant. They've seen leprosy cured, the dead come to life. They've never seen anything like this. This is the greatest unleashing of raw power they've ever witnessed. But think about these men. I mean, the leaders of these men are men who've lived their lives on the sea, on this sea. I imagine they know the Old Testament verses that teach that God controls the seas. Ones like Psalm 107, which was our responsive reading this morning, which says, They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. You know, if the sea's all riled up, and the waves are coming, and the wind stops, the waves don't immediately stop. Takes a while for them to calm down. Not here. Wind stop, wave stop, boom. Even experienced fishermen hadn't seen that before. And they just stand there in awe. The storm is past, the danger of drowning is past, and they're even more stunned than they were before. 
because they find themselves facing greater power than a life-threatening storm, power that arrives just as turbulently uh, and just as suddenly uh, as the one they just survived. And they say, what sort of man is this that even wins and see obey him? And then their eyes see. They were scared, just like I was in the presence of the storm's power. But now they realize they're in the presence of someone from another world, another place, the presence of a greater power. They know they're in the presence of the holy. And just as Moses hit the deck when the glory of God was revealed in the fury of the fire, and just as Job hit the deck when the glory of the Lord was revealed in the fury of the wind, so now they know they're in the presence of the holy because in the fury of the water, the glory of God has been manifested to them. This is God. They've experienced the presence of God and they're more terrified now than they were in the storm. Because that man standing in front of them who was asleep on the cushion in the back, who just got up and stretched and spoke and everything stopped, they know he's not just a teacher. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a healer. In front of them stands the one who holds the power of nature in the grip of his hand. And in the wet, shivering presence of such power, the disciples stand in awe and amazement knowing that that man who slept in the stern, who rose from a sound sleep to do what only God himself can do. And you read this text, and you should be able to see just how no-nonsense Jesus is, how no-nonsense Christianity is. I imagine there was a number of you some of you in early days, some of you now, some of you in days to come, who sort of chucked Christianity because you decided it wasn't really for you. It was intellectually untenable. Maybe in college, maybe some other time. You said, who knows if there's a God? Who knows what God's word is? Who's to say who Jesus was? Maybe he was a magician. Maybe he was a prophet. Who knows? And Jesus Christ and Christianity became intellectually untenable to you. So you moved on to live your life as you wanted. But as time goes by, you will come to see that you need spiritual strength that you don't have. You will come to feel an emptiness inside that you can't fill. And you'll come to see that life is not something you manage particularly well. And now you're nibbling around the edges of Christianity. Maybe you'll go to a Bible study or a fellowship group or read a book about Jesus or somebody brought you here and you've been coming for a while and you like getting the spiritual strength. There is no shortcut. You can't get strength by having some kind of vague general faith. The Bible is very no-nonsense. It says faith is applying what you've been convinced of, what you're persuaded of, what you've seen, what you know. Let me put it this way. Do you believe? We just heard some of these questions. We had a profession of faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God incarnate, born in a major? Do you believe he died on a tree, died on Calvary's hill, died on a cross for you? Do you believe that he was physically raised from the dead? Do you believe that he passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will come someday to judge both the quick and the dead, including you? If you believe that, there's all the hope in the world. <clears throat> you can face anything if you just take that faith out and apply it. 
what you know is true about Jesus. But if that's not true, and if there is no God who created the world, and if when you die you just rot, and if there's no way to deal with your guilt in some objective way, then there is nothing to hope for. You can't do an end run around these intellectual ideas. You have to go back. You have to study. You have to reflect. You have to say, is it true? Is Jesus who he said he is? Did he really do these miracles? Did he do these amazing things? That's what faith is. It's applying what you know. You see what Jesus is saying? Where is your faith? Get it out. He's pretty unsentimental. He's hard-nosed. What's the evidence for the resurrection? How do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Were there real historical witnesses who saw it? you got to know these things. Now, how do you know if there's a God? Or maybe if you die, you just rot. And you can't have faith in faith. That's not biblical. Biblical faith is having faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Some of you remember the old, older uh, Christian songwriter, Twyla Paris. She has a little line in one of her songs. She says, we will choose to remember and never be shaken. That's a great definition of faith. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. And up here, Jesus is facing these disciples and says, you've been shaken because you're not choosing to remember. Remember what? Remember this. Remember, they, they went to him, Master, we're perishing. You know what they're doing? In Mark, they, they said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They're questioning Jesus' love. And Jesus is telling them they should have known enough about his love for them that they should have been able to handle the storm. And we have something they didn't. Do you know what we have that they didn't have? We have something greater. We have far greater evidence that we can get out and use. As we read earlier, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful, breaks the cedars, flashes forth flames of fire, shakes the wilderness, makes the oaks shake and strips the forest bare. And there was a storm greater than any storm you will ever, ever go through. When Jesus Christ was stretched out on the cross at the top of Mount Calvary, the voice of the Lord thundered in a way it has never thundered before. And God forsake his son for our sake. And we don't know exactly what Jesus heard, but we know God's voice thundered. It's a storm unlike any other storm. And Jesus Christ, one man, bowed his head, and he was shaken, stripped bare, and wiped away for you and for me. And a Christian is someone who gets out what they know when the storms come and says, if Jesus Christ was faithful to me by staying true to me during that storm, I can stay true to him during my storm. Can you get that out? Where is it? You know it. If you can get it out, you can face anything anything. The most encouraging thing I found about this whole miracle is when the storms go away, because they go to him, even though they go to him really badly. Look how badly they go. Jesus, wake up. You're going to let us drown? I think that's a bad way to approach the Lord. Just my advice. And that's a poor prayer. That prayer doesn't get an A. That prayer doesn't even get a B. It's kind of like a D-minus prayer. You know why I don't fail it? 
because Jesus doesn't fail it, because it's still a prayer. And that's the most encouraging thing about this. They go to him badly. They go to him weakly. They go to him so fearfully, but they go to him. And he responds, just go to him. It doesn't matter the quality of your faith or the amount of your faith. If you go to him, it's faith. And you're not saved by the quality of your faith, and you're not saved by the amount of your faith. You're saved because he died for you. Don't you see John 6? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's not the perfection of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's just faith. And whatever you got, go to him. And you should do that now. Take a moment, you need to pray, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And in this passage, we see your son as a powerful king who rules over everything, including our storms and our lives. And we know that we have little faith, and we don't use it near enough. So Lord, increase our faith, strengthen our faith, build our faith, give us faith, and if there's anyone among us who comes here not trusting in Christ, we ask that by your Spirit you would draw that person to Jesus. Give them the faith to know Christ and help all of us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.